Hello everybody, welcome back to Waking Cosmos, a philosophy podcast exploring the nature of consciousness and its place in reality. Adrian here, good to be back with you. Today I'm joined by the philosopher and consciousness researcher Andres Gomez Emilson. He is the director of research at the Qualia Research Institute and the co-founder and president of the Stanford Transhumanist Association. Today, we discuss Andreas's views about consciousness and how it could be a deep and fundamental part of the universe. We explore how shifting our perception of identity to consciousness may profoundly transform our civilization and prepare us for an unimaginable future in the universe. We talk about the psychedelic renaissance and how it is opening us up to radical new perspectives about consciousness and reality. And we discuss what truths, if any, might be glimpsed through psychedelic and altered states. We also explore Andreas's very interesting view that subjective states of well-being, also known as positive valence, actually disclose the utility function of the universe itself. Just before we jump into this conversation, please keep in mind that you can support the continued existence of Waking Cosmos through my Patreon page at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. I'm incredibly grateful to those of you who are supporting my work on this project. I'm very happy to say that I'm now over halfway to achieving my goal. So a huge thank you to everyone who is supporting my work on Patreon. And again, that is patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. Finally, hit like if you enjoy this episode, subscribe for more, and if you're listening on YouTube, hit that little notifications bell. And as always, I'll be in the comments if you want to chat about the subjects that we explore in today's episode. I found this conversation with Andreas extremely interesting and thought-provoking, so thanks again for joining us, and without further delay, I give you Andreas Gomez Emilson. Andreas, great to be talking with you again. How are you? <laughs> good, good. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me back. Yeah, you're welcome. You know, I really wish I'd gotten to spend more time with you when I was living in the Bay Area. I only really found out about you and your work in sort of the last few months I was out there, but I really resonate with the way you think. And reading your work and talking with you, you've definitely expanded my mind on several occasions so yeah great to have you back on the podcast and uh, thanks a lot for joining me thank you very much i'm uh, very excited to have this discussion so perhaps it would be a good idea if we just laid out here at the beginning a nice clean definition of consciousness as we'll both be using this word in our conversation today <laughs> definitely there are I would say like maybe eight or nine different definitions for the word consciousness. And the thing is that all of them are interesting. So actually, I think when, when two people talk about consciousness and, and they are talking past each other, in a sense, oftentimes they're both talking about something that is very meaningful and really matters, but they may not necessarily realize that actually the definition that they're using is pretty different. I think the definition that we tend to ascribe to as the most essential definition or the core one for consciousness is the one that refers to the way experience feels like. And it's uh, yeah, perhaps most intimately connected with this word called qualia, which is the way in which experience presents itself. The blueness of blue, the quality of, of smelling cinnamon or hearing a particular sound. 
the way in which it feels. And I think like that is so puzzling because at least allegedly the universe is made of matter and matter can be characterized in terms of form and function or structure. Whereas something like the experience of the color blue doesn't seem to be structural in, in any particular way, at least from our point of view. So it's really puzzling. And uh, if you're asking where does this quality of experience come from, you're pretty much in the ballpark of, of the way in which I think of consciousness as the most puzzling aspect of consciousness. Exactly. So when we're talking about consciousness, we're really just talking about experience itself. And it is a mystery in terms of science. We don't know exactly how consciousness fits into the world yet. But something that I think your work really shows is that even though there is this ambiguity about the nature of consciousness, we can still apply logic and even mathematics to our thinking about consciousness. And this can lead to really powerful insights about the possible state space of consciousness and what may be out there to be discovered. Yes, definitely. And uh, it's quite fascinating that in a sense, we actually do have a window into the structure of consciousness and the, there are a lot of meaningful things to be said about it. Something to, to contextualize is perhaps Mary's room thought experiment, which is this idea that if you were to live in a place that only has black and white and, and shades of gray as its furbishing, and you had learned everything you could possibly find on the internet, you know, on, on textbooks about the neurophysiology of vision, convolutional neural networks, how vision might be implemented in computers, and so on, you still wouldn't know what red feels like. And, and this is quite puzzling. A lot of people argue that it's actually impossible to convey what it feels like to experience the color red just by giving you semantic knowledge or, or giving you information about the universe without actually instantiating that experience. And uh, that's very much true. The really interesting thing here is that this doesn't necessarily generalize to every kind of qualia. And, and in fact, I think that in some sense, there is a lot of structure about qualia that we can actually communicate to each other and we can find reference on each other's experiences that to some extent like narrow down what aspect of consciousness we, we may be talking about. <laughs> Sorry if this sounds too abstract, I can give a, a concrete example. The state space of particular qualia varieties can be pretty different. So a qualia variety is, for example, phenomenal color, the space of possible color sensations. Another qualia variety is the state space of smells, all of the possible smells that you could experience and I would argue that those state space, they're not just, just different in terms of what flavors or what values they contain, but they're also different in terms of the geometry of how they're related to each other. In other words, if you lay out all of the possible colors that you could experience in such a way that their physical distance is proportional to their subjective distance, which is something that you can do by using as your unit a just noticeable difference. Something that you will see is that in the state space of color, every color can basically be placed in a 3D Euclidean space, which is called in psychophysics, the CLab color space. And it's pretty fascinating because it's a 3D and Euclidean space 
where one of the axes is the blue-yellow axis, one of the other axes is the red-green axis, and then you have the black or white or the, the brightness uh, dimension. And every color that you can possibly experience is found in that three-dimensional space. On the other hand, smell doesn't seem to have an actual Euclidean space <laughs> that corresponds to it. Many, many hundreds of researchers have tried to create a dimensional layout of smell where the distances between the smells will be proportional to the subjective difference. And it doesn't seem to be possible. And in fact, there is some preliminary evidence that you actually require what is called a hyperbolic embedding in order to represent the, the state space of scent. In other words, scents are quite likely not actually dimensional in a traditional sense, that the state space is a little bit more complicated and curved and ruggedy. And that itself allows you to basically tell pretty strongly, like, hey, are we talking about phenomenal color? Are we talking about phenomenal smell? That, in a sense, just by doing experiments on yourself, you could potentially rule out this idea that somebody else is talking about smell. Because the way in which they're talking about the differences between smell just doesn't correspond to the actual state space of smell. And this sounds kind of crazy, but it is important because it rules out this possibility that, for example, other people may be experiencing smells in order to represent visual content, which is always a possibility because there are people with synesthesia. They render sound input as, for example, color qualia. And for that reason, actually being able to rule out that other people are not experiencing visual fields with sense because the geometries don't match up is actually pretty substantial information. Actually allows you to, to make meaningful statements about what other people are probably actually experiencing as opposed to just how they're behaving. It's really fascinating that there are these distinct categorical differences between the state spaces of different qualia. And I think it also brings to light just what radically different types of qualia there might be out there, which might be as different as sight is from sound. And so there is this enormous ocean of consciousness that we're only just beginning to explore. Andreas, I know that you, like a number of people I've talked to on this podcast, are also open to the possibility that consciousness could be a kind of fundamental in the universe. Could you talk a bit about why you're open to that idea? Sure. I think like one way in which you can break down theories of consciousness, uh, and there's like obviously many ways to do that, but one pretty insightful way is whether they, they say that consciousness has a level at which it emerges or if consciousness goes all the way down. And uh, one camp would be different theories of emergence. I might describe a, a lot of like functionalists as well as higher order theories of consciousness. They would say something like, well, at this level of organization, consciousness emerges, uh, such as like neural networks or something like that. And then on the other camp, they say, well, consciousness doesn't emerge at any particular level. It's always there. The thing that is changing is its configuration, its uh, values, and maybe how it's connected to itself in order to create whole experiences. And I think, like, yeah, from a parsimony point of view, I do think the camp where you say that consciousness goes all the way down is, in a sense, a lot simpler. And to a large extent, 
quite less puzzling. It doesn't necessarily give you an answer to like why consciousness is at the bedrock of, of existence. You still need to find a way to explain that. But it may, in a sense, reduce the number of mysteries that there are. Because all of a sudden, you're not just asking, why does matter exist? And why does consciousness exist? You're just asking, hey, why does consciousness exist? <laughs> and then what are its properties, among which how does consciousness generate the entire physical universe at a microstructure level? That parsimony is really compelling to me. I really like this idea that in panpsychism, which is basically this idea that consciousness is what makes up the fundamental nature of reality, within it, you have this very wonderful property that consciousness and being actually collapse into the same concept, that existing itself might actually be what the, the essence of consciousness is. And then there's many different flavors of what existing looks like. And it's just a particularly weird thing, in fact, that what we may be in this, in this account is actually a very strange physical configuration in our brain. That's what we are, <laughs> fundamentally. And the sort of thing that we are actually evolved to play a role in an organism, in a biological human organism. And even stranger still, that role may actually be to process information <laughs> in a particularly efficient way for the survival, survival of the organism. So we're a very strange sort of thing that has a very particular function and a very, very particular place in the universe. And it's, yeah, extraordinarily bizarre that we're trying to reconstruct what everything else feels like <laughs> intrinsically from the point of view of this very exotic object that evolved for, for a very particular reason in biological organisms. is definitely pretty mind-boggling. Yeah, definitely. I'm very interested in this idea that being or existence itself implies consciousness in some way, that, like you said, existing might be what the essence of consciousness is. I wondered if you wouldn't mind going into a bit more detail about the specific form of panpsychism that you find most interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think like speaking very, very technically, the brand of panpsychism I might defend is non-materialist uh, physicalism with quantum coherence for binding. I guess like a brief account of that is this idea that reality is made of fields and those fields are actually qualia. And basically, qualia behaves in certain ways that can be described with physical laws, with the mathematics of physics. And in a lot of cases, those fields interact in such a way that they create, in some sense, pockets, pockets of experience that are topologically isolated from the rest of reality. So you can create the illusion of individuality, even though everything is connected as part of the same set of fields. And uh, this process is something that uh, we've uh, talked a lot about it at QRI. We call it topological segmentation. An example of this would be if you take a balloon and imagine that consciousness is the, the surface of the balloon, this field. And then if you take the balloon from both ends and you twist them in opposite directions, there is a precise moment where the balloon will collapse in the center and you'll have a pinch point. And basically, it will look like two balloons connected by a point. And in that sense, you took something that was unified, that was this very smooth surface, and you transformed it into two surfaces divided by one point. There is a, a clear sense of 
a sort of individual emerging, if you consider the pinch point, a new entity that was created by this twisting. And in this sense, atoms, for example, or even just fundamental particles, an electron, you could think of it as one of those pinch points in the surface of, of reality. It looks like it exists on its own, but really is this intersection between several fields that collapse in certain way that make it look like a unit and behave like a unit. And likewise, we think that every moment of experience that we have is some kind of collapsed topological segment of the fields. And that's why it feels like we are individuals, even though we're all connected to the same field, we're nonetheless topologically isolated. And maybe just to um, describe how this pans out in, in other places, a lot of people make fun of panpsychism by saying that, hey, you believe that rocks uh, are conscious and they think or have feelings, or you, know, you believe that the sun is alive or something like that. But uh, you know, in this view of panpsychism, it's not that a rock is a unit of consciousness because rigidity in itself wouldn't necessarily do this trick of topological segmentation. But maybe some subcomponents of the rock, especially when you have physical phases, basically perfectly repeating symmetrical patterns, organizations of matter, the phases themselves might be shards of consciousness. In some sense, they maybe are bound and they have this pseudo-individuality, but they certainly wouldn't have any thoughts or feelings because for that you need natural selection to basically recruit these very specific rarefied regions of the space of consciousness for all sorts of purposes. And I don't think that's happening in a, in a rock. That said, a rock probably does have what you might call mind dust, tiny, tiny specks of experience, some of them larger, some of them smaller, but they don't amount to a mind, but they do amount to a lot of tiny micro experiences. And yeah, the world is populated by micro experiences for the most part, except in some regions where these phenomena of uh, topological segmentation can be large enough to actually manifest macroscopic individuals, <laughs> so to speak. And maybe a, a counterintuitive place where you actually may have a super large individual, again, not a mind, but perhaps a very large experience, unified experience, is with a strange phenomena like superfluid helium, which is when you cool down helium to such a low temperature that not only becomes liquid, but also experiences a strange quantum phase transition. And it becomes this unified field, basically, that makes all of the liquid itself a coherent quantum object. And in that sense, an entire bucket of superfluid helium might be a, a huge experience. What it feels like to be that experience, I have no idea. But uh, it might be pretty significant in the amount of consciousness that is bound. So yeah, for the most part, most of the universe is mind dust. Some of it is experiences like us, and some of it might be large experiences, but not exactly minds, just weird, phenomenally bound qualia. So you call this view non-materialist physicalism. And as you said, it's a form of panpsychism. And, um, and so it's a view where the fundamental fields that make up reality are in fact fields of qualia. So that seems to take the view that the fundamental nature of reality 
it's not just that consciousness is one of the essential ingredients of reality, but that it is the fundamental interiority of the apparent exterior physical phenomena of the world. So it sounds a little bit to me like this might be a species of idealism. Yeah, yeah, it is a type of uh, idealism in the sense that idealism says that all that exists is consciousness or awareness or the big mind or something like that. This would be kind of a, a physicalist uh, idealism. The, the full account would actually be called non-materialist physicalist idealism with quantum coherence to bind. <laughs> so this view, as you said, is a form of panpsychism and uh, it is a category of view which has gained quite a bit of support in recent times. And it does seem to be now more generally accepted that classical materialism does have a real problem when it comes to explaining consciousness. But also that assigning some kind of fundamentality to consciousness is a very credible and promising direction to explore. Andres, what do you think has changed in the last sort of 10 or 15 years that's made panpsychism and other deeper views of consciousness more plausible to academics? Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful question. I think like, yeah, definitely the, the tides are turning. I don't think it's a mainstream academic view as such, but it is definitely not frowned upon or definitely not as much as it used to be to, yeah, consider panpsychism like openly uh, in an academic setting. It is one of those things that I do generally think that actually like philosophers and scientists are more open to than they let out. And uh, in general, there's actually more openness than, than they're willing to accept in public, just because it's perceived as a pretty weird view. But yeah, in, in my experience, people are actually pretty open to it. What has happened that has uh, made people more willing to talk about it in public? I think part of it actually has to do with the, the conceptual revolutions brought out by integrated information theory, that in a sense, trying to find a mathematical formalism for panpsychism is something that gives a lot of le legitimacy to panpsychism as a concept. And uh, this idea that, hey, like there's at least something you can point at that is trying to reconcile a scientific way of thinking together with these rather odd and strange view that everything is conscious has put a lot of researchers on, on firm ground to kind of justify this view. More speculatively, I think uh, from a sociological point of view, I do suspect that the, the psychedelic renaissance <laughs> has something to do with it as well. That uh, to a large extent, we are actually slowly being opened up <laughs> to a lot of more psychedelic-like ideas. And I think like that's a trend that will probably continue I'm pretty confident that the next generations, when they become professors, they will be very open to psychedelics. And I think that's going to change the landscape of conversation quite significantly. Right. So, Andreas, I know that you consider psychedelics and altered states of consciousness to be very important tools when it comes to consciousness research. Why do you think psychedelics are so important and interesting to explore? Yeah, I mean, I think like the, the first intuition bump here is imagining what it would be like to try to study physics or chemistry if you were fully constrained to room temperature physics and chemistry. I'm sure you can do some interesting discoveries and advancements, but 
a whole lot of physics actually shows up in, in the high energy spaces or the ultra low energy spaces. And in some sense, it might even be impossible to settle down on a standard model of physics without looking at what happens in these exotic temperature or pressure regimes. And I think likewise, there's a lot you can say about consciousness and qualia by just looking at its quote-unquote room temperature properties, which I would say is the standard everyday life uh, human type of experience of somebody who doesn't have any serious mental illness. And you can discover quite a few fascinating things, but I do think the information is rather limited. And also, you may actually discover things that you think are universal rules, but actually you find all sorts of counterexamples in other states of consciousness that may be a little bit more exotic. Now, what I just said would build the case for just studying consciousness in any other state other than the normal, everyday, sober, not severely mentally ill states of consciousness. But... There's something special about psychedelics that actually makes those states uniquely interesting, or I would say much more interesting than other altered states. And perhaps I, if I were to kind of rank substances or rank uh, altered states based on what I consider to be research priorities, I would probably say something along the lines of 5-MeO DMT would be at the very top in terms of how much we can learn from it scientifically in understanding consciousness. Then I would place MDMA, then DMT, then all of the psychedelics, and after that, all of the dissociatives. And after that, well, it doesn't matter that much. They're not that interesting. <laughs> well, it depends. I would probably put uh, Ibogaine also very, very high up, even though Ibogaine is very hard to classify. It's not exactly a psychedelic or a dissociative, but it seems to be extraordinarily interesting in its own right for many, many deep reasons. What makes uh, psychedelic states of consciousness in some sense uniquely fascinating or uniquely informative is that A, they increase the energy parameter of your experience. This is kind of a, analogous in some sense to, to studying physics at temperatures above 100 degrees Celsius, where <laughs> you, know, you take a glass of water at 40 degrees and you say like, okay, it's just plain water. You take it to 80 degrees Celsius and you say, it looks kind of pretty much the same. And you kind of infer that, well, it's just going to get warmer, but nothing interesting is going to happen. But then you heat 100 de degrees Celsius, and it actually starts boiling and turning into gas. And this like weird, completely new transformation that happens. And I would say that increasing the energy parameter of your experience on psychedelics, there's something kind of similar, really unexpected phase transitions that really change how consciousness behaves pretty dramatically. And likewise... Let's say you take 10 micrograms of LSD. Hey, that's kind of a little bit of a, a lukewarm consciousness, a microdose. It's a little bit different, a little bit more fluid, but you know nothing to write home about. You take 50 micrograms of LSD, and uh, okay, this is getting interesting, but still there's a lot of commonalities with normal everyday life. You take 200 micrograms of LSD and like, oh my gosh, the walls are melting and your thought processes are completely scrambled and the way you make associations is completely different and your imagination is capable of constructing entirely new laws of physics and there's a, a kind of like a fluid instability in your consciousness, all sorts of exotic phenomena that really doesn't happen in normal everyday life. In particular, the reason I highlighted 
5-MeO-DMT and, and MDMA as maybe the, the top two substances to study as I see it is because they interface with valence so directly. MDMA, if you don't take it often and you take it at a, at a sensible dose, it's extremely likely that you will just have a very good experience, an experience that you might rank as one of the top 10 in your life extremely, extremely delightful and pleasant and a weird, actually kind of unheard of combination of extreme excitement together with uh, equanimity and peacefulness. Room temperature consciousness rarely experiences, you know, that type of overlap. And then on MDMA is like everywhere, you know, <laughs> that's like the texture of reality becomes this blend of excitement and equanimity. What the hell? <laughs> and it feels amazing. It really feels like falling in love. The feeling of love feels extremely genuine. There's nothing fake about it. And also the, the feeling of self-love and, and acceptance. And there's even been some uh, recent research on the game theoretical implications of MDMA. Get a, a person to play a Prisoner's Dilemma on MDMA. They seem to be more cooperative. All of that seems to be extremely relevant, <laughs> especially from the point of view of where we are in history that we need to find technologies for cooperation and finding ways of reducing suffering. And then 5-MeO-DMT is also fascinating because, first of all, it produces the most convincing and believable impression of open individualism. A lot of people mention something like, you merge with the Godhead or with infinite consciousness <laughs> or the ground of being on 5-MeO-DMT. Don't get me wrong, this happens in other psychedelics as well. It's a relatively common thing that happens on high doses of LSD, for example, but it's never guaranteed. And even then, like on LSD, you always experience all sorts of other crazy things in addition to a quote-unquote mystical union, whereas on 5-MeO-DMT is oftentimes just the mystical union, just the core effect <laughs> that is the most profound, just running at you at a super high speed <laughs> just a few seconds after you inhale 5-MeO-DMT. And that makes it super important, again, from a game theoretical point of view, fostering cooperation. If we all switch our mindset from believing in our ego identity and switching into a consciousness-based identity, the world would potentially become much better very quickly. And 5-MeO-DMT has that potential. But even more so, 5-MeO-DMT produces the highest valence states that we know of. I did a lot of research last year on basically ranking experiences and comparing them in terms of the amount of bliss, how sublime they are. And basically, 5-MeO-DMT tops the charts when you have a good experience, which is actually also something to point out that sometimes you can have a hellish experience and also that makes it a pretty dangerous substance, which is why I think of it as much more of a scientific research tool than something that we should just give uh, free samples in the street or, or anything of that sort. But done in a, in a really good set and setting, the chances of a good trip are very, very high. And those good experiences tend to be on a completely different order of magnitude or level than other positive experiences. If MDMA can put you in a 7 out of 10 feeling of wholesomeness and bliss and connection with the sublime, 5-MeO-DMT seems capable of putting you at a 10 out of 10. People say like it just maxes out how good you could possibly feel. And well, obviously that seems an incredibly important thing to study. From a raw scientific point of view, 
And anybody who's even remotely interested in consciousness, it makes a lot of sense to save a special place for studying 5-MeO-DMT. But all of the psychedelics are severely understudied. I think we're about to experience a huge overhaul of the paradigm of how we understand consciousness thanks to, yeah, the psychedelic renaissance and and scientific research being more focused on these altered states of consciousness, I think it's going to be as monumental of a transition as switching from a geocentric model of the universe to a heliocentric, to recognizing that, hey, we actually just experience a tiny region of the state space of consciousness. <laughs> Our normal everyday life consciousness is not the center of the universe, and there are things that are just far more brighter and in some sense far more significant. <laughs> and yeah, it's just a matter of uh, exploring it and studying them. That's a wonderful answer. One thing that psychedelics really can do, I think, is perturb our deep metaphysical beliefs. They can really change our views about reality. And people, even academics that I've spoken to, have been more open-minded than I expected them to be about the idea that psychedelic states can connect us with ground truths about reality. So, for example, that we are one consciousness, and even in some perhaps smaller number of academics that I've spoken to, that apparent other intelligences encountered through psychedelics could somehow be more than hallucinations. And so it definitely does open up the doors to people thinking about these other metaphysical possibilities. And there is really a range of very different, strange, some outlandish ideas about the nature of psychedelic states and um, what they could be tapping into. So Andreas, how do you sort through these ideas and what truths, if any, do you think can be glimpsed through psychedelics? Yeah, I think the deepest truth that I know of that I can recall from psychedelics is the connection between harmony, symmetry, and valence. And I do think this is a universal connection. I also think it's, in some sense, a platonically true connection and fundamental. And it's something that, because our normal everyday life consciousness has been, in some sense, overly engineered by evolution in order to hide away the fact that what we care about is valence, and instead we live under the illusion that what we care about is particular external states or social status or even just health or something like that. On psychedelics, all of that falls away and you can, in some sense, very cleanly compare how asymmetrical slash dissonant states of consciousness feel bad just like that. I mean, you can enter a very resonant, very dissonant, meaningless in the sense that it doesn't point you at anything in particular uh, state and you will see that it feels really bad. And likewise, you can enter a very clean, semantically pure, I mean, that is to say, like, it doesn't refer to anything, state of consonance and resonance, and you will see that it feels really good. If you make a OM on, on a high enough dose of LSD, and you enter into this um, trance into the sound, and you become the sound, and the sound is harmonious, that feels amazing. And that's incredibly puzzling. Why would that feel so good? <laughs> My interpretation is like a lot of people who experience that, they're not coming at it from a scientific or even a philosophical point of view. They're coming at it from more of a revelatory point of view. They're expecting their psychedelic experience to 
put them in contact with a higher intelligence or something like that. So when they experience these weird valence exotic effects, like becoming sound, being a, a profoundly pleasant experience, they interpret it as some kind of intelligence sending them a message or maybe asking them to be more harmonious in their everyday life or something like that. Whereas, quite frankly, how I see it is, oh my gosh, you just instantiated a relatively pure state of high valence. And now you have the chance of looking at what is making this state so high valence. And I think if I were to point at something that psychedelics reveal as a deep truth that is very true and very self-evident in the state would be how harmony and valence are deeply intertwined. I do not agree that psychedelics can show you that we are all one consciousness. I actually consider more these kind of a unitive experiences on psychedelics to be proofs of concept. There are ways in which you can show that your world simulation, the experience that you inhabit generated by your brain, has many parameters. And one of those parameters is whether there is a separate ego or not. And that is a variable parameter. Oftentimes, it's pretty solid in most people's experience. If you have some types of mental illness, like depersonalization or derealization, yeah, that parameter is really loose and it comes and goes. If you meditate a lot, that parameter breaks away as well. And, you know, something like a high dose of a psychedelic just completely, completely scrambles <laughs> those parameters. And then you can flip between feeling that you're a separate individual ego, to thinking that you're a soul, to thinking that you are consciousness itself, to thinking that you are the mind of God. And you can cycle through all of these different interpretations of what is the source of reality, what is the source of consciousness. And I mean, my interpretation here is like you're cycling through possible parameters of your world simulation. And your world simulation is actually really, really, really complex. It has many, many layers. It definitely has some layers that correspond to what we believe is fundamental reality. On a high enough dose of psychedelics, you can modify those parameters and you can have some profound twistings of ontological reality. You can go from deeply believing in materialism to believing in idealism to believing in simulationism, that we're in some kind of computer simulation, to believing that you are God, and so on. It shows you a huge spectrum of possible interpretations of reality and consciousness. But um, I personally think of them as configurations of your world simulation. And if anything, they are meaningful because they show you that we could experience things very differently, but also they're a proof of concept. They're a way in which you can get an intuitive feel for maybe reality has a completely different nature than I had anticipated. However, a lot of people experience this sense of oneness. They take 5-MeO-DMT and they quote-unquote merge with everything. They merge with the cosmos or the mind of God or something like that. And uh, my interpretation here is that in a sense, they are having an experience where the internal boundaries are being dissolved. And because our consciousness is simulating an external environment, when you have your internal boundaries being dissolved, it actually feels like you're merging with something outside of you. It feels like you're merging with your environment or merging with an intelligence higher than yours and outside of yours. But I do personally think that's an illusion. 
that uh, in some sense you are melting into yourself and by eliminating those boundaries, you're becoming a bigger consciousness, a more resonant consciousness, a more unified consciousness, but not unified with anything else <laughs> other than just yourself. And uh, here is why I actually make a, an important distinction between an experiential argument for open individualism versus a philosophical argument for open individualism. And I actually trust more philosophical arguments than experiential arguments, which is flipped from, um, you know, most people are interested in psychedelics or meditation or mysticism. They, they will say something like, no, man, direct experience will show you the truth. <laughs> As I see, direct experience will show me different parameters of my world simulation. And that's cool. <laughs> and it's useful. But no, I don't think it's the ultimate truth revealed in a sense. I'd like to uh, come back to what you said there about, you know, perceiving universal truth or cosmic consciousness through psychedelics. But uh, I know that you also have a unique interpretation of why some people in psychedelic states feel like they're communicating with other intelligences, uh, especially DMT. People talk a lot about super intelligent entities, uh, interdimensional beings. So, Andreas, what do you think is going on there? Right. DMT in particular is the one that seems to produce the most uh, genuine feeling of other intelligences saying very concrete things. This is definitely a, a rabbit hole, but I, I do have some thoughts on like why DMT in particular produces those feelings and, and what those actually correspond to. I will say for sure that in some sense on DMT, you do experience higher dimensional beings. I do think that's true. I just don't think they are external and independently existing, but they are higher dimensional and higher dimensional in a way that only DMT, as far as I know, can really produce. I mean, maybe just an example of what I mean by higher dimensional is that when you take a small dose of DMT and you look at a wall, you will see that it will start to desolate. You will have what's called the wallpaper symmetry groups, basically ways in which the arrangements can repeat symmetrically. And, and there's a, a limited number of them, 17. If you take a slightly higher dose, you will enter a three-dimensional space where almost certainly the surfaces of that three-dimensional space will be filled with uh, symmetrical patterns. Now, if you take an even higher dose, the symmetrical patterns in the walls of those rooms will also be correlated such that in walls that are uh, in opposite sides of each other, the symmetries are twisting or moving uh, synchronized in, and in complementary ways. This is something that a lot of trippers and anonymous psychonauts have reported when I have interviewed them. And to me, this like strongly suggests this notion of a virtual higher dimensions. Because when you have interlocking patterns in three dimensions, that are, in a sense, moving in complementary and symmetrical ways, you are creating a virtual fourth dimension. And it doesn't seem to stop there. A high enough dose of DMT can produce hallucinations that have, quote-unquote, virtual higher dimensions of maybe up to like seven dimensions. Again, sounds completely crazy, but there's a precise mathematical way to describe, actually, what's happening here. You're in this high-dimensional space, and then you're hallucinating these other entities the crazy thing is that the way in which you think in this space will be very different than how you think in normal space, partly because of the higher dimensions. And in that sense, you are temporarily a super intelligence of a sort. You are a higher intelligence than us 
in the sense that you're able to experience objects that are actually impossible to render in our normal everyday form of consciousness. Of course, you are less intelligent in some sense. I mean, I'm sure you would be really bad at an IQ test or something like that on a high dose of, of DMT, but you'd be potentially really good at some kind of a visual, spatial test of being able to render higher dimensional objects, which no test like that currently exists, but I'm sure we can design one and people on DMT would probably be really good at it. So, okay, like you have this enhanced intelligence temporarily and you're also hallucinating entities. Well, those entities will feel super highly intelligent actually because you're sharing the same, in a sense, higher dimensional space with them. So I don't think they're super intelligences outside of you. I think they are projections of your own temporary super intelligence. You know, you are a super intelligence and you're creating these avatars that are showcasing what you can do with this higher intelligence that you just acquired and you, you're about to lose. Oftentimes it's very difficult to tell apart, is this intelligence mine or the intelligence of the other entity? And I think it's quite an indistinguishable interstate, but upon reflection, you can infer that it actually it was you. <laughs> you were the super intelligence you were talking to. That's fascinating. One thing that I think does make me slightly more open to the possibility, not so much of extra dimensional entities, but that, you know, psychedelics or altered states may in some sense bring us into uh, a deeper contact with reality is you know, as you and I were talking about earlier, there are compelling reasons to think that consciousness is a deep fundamental in the universe, that our minds might be an expression of this larger principle of consciousness. And so that does make me more open-minded than perhaps I otherwise would be to the idea that these states might allow for some deeper contact with reality. So for example, in the analogy that you used earlier with the balloon twisting to create our sense of separate identity, you know, perhaps psychedelics or very altered states have the effect of slightly untwisting that knot and allowing some of that larger reality to spill in. That does seem to be at least a possibility to me. Yeah, yeah. All of these views can definitely be a steel mint. The view of the untwisting of the balloon, a lot of people would, <laughs> would say that 5-MeO DMT resonates a lot with that metaphor. I can definitely see ways of still manning this idea that on 5-MeO-DMT, you're in some sense untwisting the balloon and releasing the pinch point <laughs> into the, the broader field of consciousness. And that only happens on breakthrough dosages. And if you don't get breakthrough dosage, you might have like some other weird effects, but you won't have these merging with the Godhead, so to speak, which might be, you know, the entire field <laughs> or something like that. And I think we can still mend this view by basically saying something along the lines of what is separating us from the rest of reality is a topological twist on the electromagnetic field that our brains are kind of like pinching the electromagnetic field. And perhaps if the brain stops functioning in a particular way, that pinching breaks down. And in that sense, the, the contents of the electromagnetic field that were inside spill over into the outside and, and vice versa. It's a possibility, and I, I would love to test it and, and explore it. And, and I think it's possible, in a sense, to test it. There might be very clean, measurable signatures of the topology of the electromagnetic field, and maybe it changes when you take 5-MeO-DMT. 
I definitely like exploring these possibilities of how to steal men some of the craziest interpretations of psychedelic experiences. I'd really like to get into your views about identity and consciousness. I think generally you and I share the view that consciousness is what we really are. Consciousness is our fundamental identity. Um, but I think for us to get into your more nuanced views about this, we should probably introduce the philosopher Daniel Kolak, whose terms you draw on quite a bit in your work. So Andreas, would you mind giving us a brief introduction to Kolak's categories of identity and how you interpret them? Yeah, definitely. So the three categories are open individualism, closed individualism, and empty individualism. I think like right off the bat, maybe like 95 or 99% of people would be closed individualists, which basically amounts to common sense for the most part, which is this idea that you start existing when you're born and you stop existing when you die. Or maybe you continue existing as a soul in the afterlife. And of course, if reincarnation is true, you existed before <laughs> this lifetime. But in any of those cases, you're still kind of this individual consciousness that moves through time and is a separate observer than every other observer in reality, so to speak. And uh, there are a lot of uh, subtle problems with this view that suggest this doesn't seem to actually carve nature at its joints, but uh, it's intuitively true and it's uh, true enough for most purposes. But uh, if you actually want to dig deeper and, and see what reality actually is made of, you might need to explore some of the other views as well. So then you have empty individualism, which is this idea that you are actually just a snapshot of experience. You're just a moment of experience. And this, uh, it's very counterintuitive, especially because a lot of people basically say that you don't, don't actually exist in a very specific point in space-time. You're distributed over time, over several hundreds of milliseconds, as neural processing is not that fast. And from that point of view, it's kind of very strange to imagine that you're just a snapshot. A lot of people tend to say things such as, we are a process, or consciousness is a process over time, in which case, Continuity and, and change and transformation is, a, is an inherent property of consciousness. But empty individualism would say, no, actually, you're just made of these whole snapshots that maybe they contain the, the feeling of the passage of time, but they're still just actually spatiotemporally bound and localizable <laughs> in, in space-time. And yeah, from that point of view, Actually, you are a whole lot of different, separate, independent, ontologically unique entities throughout your life. And from the moment you start a sentence and, and the moment you finish it, you have been many different <laughs> observers. And perhaps some aspects of Buddhism come closer to embracing this view. And then you have open individualism, which is this idea that we are all one consciousness. It, you know, it opens up a, lo a lot of questions like, are we experiencing everything simultaneously or are we perhaps a observer that is bouncing around from one part of reality to another or perhaps everything exists timelessly and you're the entirety of reality all at once and I i'm actually sympathetic to the last one also sympathetic to empty individualism from from other points of view but uh the one thing i would i would say is that i strongly suspect that closed individualism just doesn't hold up. <laughs> it just has too many cracks, too many issues. 
And that's why, yeah, I think like probably reality and truth is to be found either in empty individualism or open individualism. Yeah, that's a nice summary. I really do think that these are very useful categories for thinking about identity, uh, closed individualism, empty individualism, and open individualism. Uh, so closed individualism, as you said, is really how most people see themselves in reality. It's a, a view that gives us a strong individual sense of significance. Um, but as you say, it's really more of an operating system than a truly coherent account of identity. And as you point out, there are these various examples where the view does seem to come apart. And just as mystics and philosophers have been saying for centuries, this view of self really comes apart when you try to look for it. But it does seem that after deconstructing closed individualism, what you're left with in terms of identity is really just consciousness itself as uh, you know the witness to all of these occasions of experience. And of course, this starts to lead us towards a more open individualistic direction. Andreas, you've mentioned in the past that although humans evolved to have a mostly closed individualist outlook, there are probably other more collective species, such as ants, ant colonies, bees. If they have consciousness, then they probably have a much more open individualistic view of themselves. Would you mind talking a bit about why you see that being the case? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is, uh, this is quite fascinating because even if you believe in closed individualism, for the most part, people are not actually very consistent <laughs> with this belief. First of all, there's this thing called hyperbolic discounting, which is just how quickly, as you go away from the present moment, our ability to care <laughs> about other experiences and other people and even ourselves diminish pretty quickly. So like people don't necessarily save enough for their retirement. They don't necessarily think very long term or, you know, particularly take care of their health, even though nominally they might believe that they will experience the consequences of a poor lifestyle. But you could definitely, you know, chuck a lot of these things up to impulse control or, or something like that, that perhaps it doesn't have to do with our felt sense of identity. But I actually do think it has something to do with how we represent what we are in the entirety of reality that in a sense if you are in a in a super hedonistic mode that kind of has implications about what you identify with and to a large extent it may be that you're identifying with who you are today and not necessarily with who you will be tomorrow <laughs> and you know likewise there's like some other states of consciousness where perhaps you identify with a with a long-term future and perhaps they are more healthy in in some ways or as well they might miss opportunities in other ways but what I'm trying to convey here is that even time discounting already shows that we are not very consistent about closed individualism, even if, you, if one believes in it. And this, uh, I think, like generalizes as well when it comes to our perceptions of our connections with others. And it's quite fascinating that we tend to experience ourselves in others to some extent in proportion either to how genetically close they are to us or how beneficial our relationship with that person may be. And there's this fascinating research on biorhythm synchronization, how if you're in the same room with somebody, how synchronized your biorhythms, that is like your breathing, your heart rate, and, and properties like heart rate variability and galvanic skin response, 
all of those features, basically, they can tell you how friendly you are with somebody. The degree of amicability and, and kindness and friendliness is highly, highly correlated with how synchronized you are with, with the people around you. And to some extent, if you think about it, if you experience other people as more synchronized to you, in some sense, you're kind of breaking down barriers for identifying with them. And I would say that to a large extent, if you're in a really great state of mind with people who are very dear to you, friends and family, it actually feels like you all share some piece of your soul. You all share some core aspect of your identity and your being. And of course, I, I think it's, it's true on a, on a very, very deep level. On another level, it's almost kind of a perceptual trick because it's pretty biased. If you're with your friends and family, you feel very connected to them. A stranger comes in asking for help. They may be perceived as threatening or as a, a strange other, even though presumably there's still nothing fundamental separating you from that stranger relative to your family and friends. It's pretty clear to me that the qualia of friendship, the feeling of somebody being very close to you genetically, is interfacing very deeply with a sense of identity. and. I suspect if we were all clones of each other or we worked in huge human hives of some sort and we were all siblings, that yeah, the way in which we feel and think of others would be just dramatically different. We would be way more likely to cooperate with others and see ourselves in others and sacrifice ourselves for others. And yet all of that would be an evolved perceptual trick playing with these felt sense of oneness. And I would like to emphasize that I think there is a, a very big distinction between the felt sense of oneness and then ontological oneness, what's actually true out there. They can be contradictory. You could have a super strong feeling of oneness and oneness could be false. And likewise, you could feel very lonely, you could feel separate from everything and oneness could be true. So actually, I think the fact that you feel that you're one with others, it's not itself evidence, it's really just more a feature of your experience. But it's a very useful feature. And I think actually there's a lot of potential for the future of coordination, for the future of peace, in identifying ways of generating a robust, sustainable, and euphoric feeling of oneness with others. So in many ways, open individualism is, as you've pointed out, an ancient view, this idea that we are the, the flame of the candle rather than the candle itself. Hinduism, you've pointed out, is essentially open individualistic. So it is an ancient view in several respects. I think I find myself slightly more interested in how open individualism could be, as you've described it, the future of identity. And not just for humans necessarily, but as a potential convergence point of intelligent minds in some general sense in the universe. Yes, there's pretty good reasons to believe that open individualism will play a pretty significant causal role in the way the universe evolves from now on. And basically, I think it has the potential of overcoming some of the game-theoretical impasses that, that comes from uh, closed individualism, that there are some fundamental conflict of interests that comes if you have a lot of beings who believe in enclosed identity that simply don't arise if you actually believe in open individualism. One clear example is that enclosed individualism 
most beings, in a sense, define themselves as only existing within certain parameters, and most certainly in terms of what states of consciousness they can access or, or they can't. So, you know, somebody might even say that if somebody is on a, on a heavy dose of DMT, for example, that that person is not human. And in a very objective sense, the way in which that person is experiencing the world, the values of their consciousness is actually so radically different from everyday normal human experience that, yeah, it could be considered an instance of something from a different species. And in that sense, a lot of people might say, if you vaporize DMT, you're actually temporarily becoming somebody else and somebody else I may not actually care about. Just a different observer, different region of the state space of consciousness, just not me, not who I am. Whereas an open individualist actually would say, whatever I can experience, whatever strange modifications I may do to my nervous system, it doesn't matter, it will still be me. And in that sense, there's a tremendous advantage in identifying with the entire state space of consciousness, because you're much more free to explore and to, in a sense, recruit other aspects of consciousness at large. And this comes with tremendous benefits when it comes to computational power and coordination and being able to adapt yourself to completely novel environments. So in that sense, I think open individualism is very evolutionarily adaptive, especially (laughs) in the stages of evolution that we find ourselves in. And also it's a cooperation technology that if we're able to induce in a very reliable way states of the feeling of open individualism or the felt sense of oneness between different actors, that that actually will bring them together in a way that is much, much, much deeper than if they were just to cooperate simply because it's you know mutually beneficial in a game theoretical sense. So I do anticipate that the future is going to be super interesting when it comes to the feeling of personal identity. And yeah, I suspect it's actually going to be a very strange ecosystem for a while. And there's a pretty good chance that open individualist factions, so to speak, will probably end up being in control in the long term. And I actually consider that a a pretty positive outcome, or at least much better than perpetual war between closed individualist factions. (laughs) I like this term of open individualism as a cooperation technology, and um, that this is what potentially makes it a convergence point for intelligent minds in the universe, that there is this progress towards benevolence. Andreas, what are your thoughts about how human civilization might structure itself differently if open individualism was collectively embraced? How do you think our priorities might be shifted from what they currently are? Yeah, that's a really good question. A couple of thoughts on these Probably the the biggest looming thought is the importance of the long-term future that from a utilitarian point of view of the most happiness for the largest number of possible sentient beings, the far future contains most likely the bulk (laughs) of what's uh, going to happen in, in, in the universe when it comes to complex states of consciousness that may have intrinsic subjective feeling of well-being and value. So caring about the long term will probably surface as a, as a big priority. In a sense, any temporal discounting other than zero, in a sense, is unacceptable from the point of view of the big picture of, of open individualism, that uh, just because an entity lives in the far future 
3 billion years from now doesn't make it any less valuable. It's just as real. It's just a different coordinate of space-time. But, you know, okay, like that seems pretty far-fetched. But yeah, I mean, basically, pretty long-term planning would be something that I would associate with society that has embraced open individualism. Another thing is a lot of people care about eliminating factory farming, and I'm uh, fully in support of that. And I think it tends to feel a lot more urgent if you believe in open individualism that it's not only a nice thing to do to get rid of the suffering of animals in factory farms, but it's something that it's urgently needed because you are experiencing it. It's a very personal problem. So on the one hand, viewing ourselves as expressions of consciousness, initially it can seem to have this veneer of being, you know, kind of a hippie-ish view that we might be slightly detached from reality. But actually seeing our identity as consciousness is also a confrontation, I think, with some pretty harsh realities. So, you know, you mentioned factory farming. It is a view that really forces us to examine the enormous amount of suffering that's happening in other conscious beings. And, you know, this is suffering that is, by extension, happening to us. Yeah. And I think one of the, in a sense, root causes of the the perception of oneness or, you know, non-duality, open individualism as just a happy-go-lucky, hippie reality is that to a large extent, people who who believe in oneness also tend to be very open to many other views. And uh, definitely, if you talk to people who are, you know, in spiritual circles or who take a lot of psychedelics or meditate a lot and believe in open individualism, a good percentage of them will also believe in other things like karma or simulation theory or that DMT entities are actually real and (laughs) a lot of other things. It's kind of like clustered together (laughs) with a a lot of other beliefs that honestly sound like just wishful thinking or just, hey, you're trying to make reality seem more interesting than it really is. You want to have kind of this very bombastic, messianic role in the evolution of the cosmos or something like that. But no, I mean, I think there's a, a very sober view of oneness and open individualism as well. And when you see it from that point of view, as kind of a a very realistic and uh, down-to-earth view of actually what we are, it does come with a lot of stark realities. One of the things that make open individualism attractive to a lot of people, and definitely something that was very important to me back in the day, is this idea that if we are all one consciousness, death is not a big of a deal. It's in a sense just the end of a particular story is not the end of everything. It's not the end of you as an observer. Eternal non-existence actually seems really scary. In some sense, there's nothing to worry about it. But this idea that, hey, you can realize that we're all one consciousness and death becomes a completely different kind of entity, a completely different kind of situation. Yeah, I think that's really attractive and compelling, especially from our evolutionary drive, our survival drive. Our fear of death can be uh, pretty, pretty bad. It can be pretty detrimental to be obsessed with non-existence and open individualism really helps with that. But yeah, then you also realize that you will, in a sense, have to experience the suffering of the entire world or or perhaps multiverse, (laughs) which, uh, yeah, extraordinarily uh, scary. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens in existence. And in a sense, not only are we responsible for it, but also we are the victims of all of it. And yeah, that's actually pretty unpleasant to think about. 
and reframes what matters, what happens in, in my life, what happens in the average person's life, pales in comparison to just how morally significant other lifetimes are in terms of the degree of suffering that they experience. You have a philosophical stance which grounds a lot of your work, and this is that psychological valence uh, is the ultimate locus of all the value that exists in consciousness. So valence being essentially positive states of consciousness, bliss, joy, etc. So Andreas, could you give an outline of your philosophical position about valence? Yeah, so a little pleasure is good. A lot of pleasure is even better. So, <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we understand when we're kids and then uh, reality hit us in some ways and, and makes our idealistic feelings go away because we, we feel kind of the, the negative reinforcement of our expectations and reality not matching up. And I think like to a large extent, a lot of people get disillusioned with the pursuit of pleasure and, and well-being, feelings of joy to a large extent because it's largely inaccessible to us most of the time. And I think philosophies like uh, Stoicism, for example, this idea that it's important to embrace reality just as it is and not try to, to change it, or at least like not try to change neurotically things that you can't change. And a lot of those philosophies are helpful. And I think like they're actually, to some extent, self-help guides. In a sense, our ways of dealing with the reality that we can't biologically at this stage feel wonderful all the time. But to extend that into believing that we can't feel good all the time, I think it's in a sense uh, taking something that was created for one context and then generalizing it to every context. And I think a lot of the emphasis that people give on things of value that are like other than subjective states of well-being in a sense, is a way of like sidestepping this problem that, hey, if you actually just focus on well-being, it might be kind of disappointing that you just can't get <laughs> to feel as good as you might expect to. There's this thing in a psychology called the uh, paradox of, of pleasure, which is that people who are obsessed with trying to feel pleasure, in a sense, become much more miserable than people who are actually just interested in living a normal, simple life, or even people who are just interested in, in this idea of uh, subjective meaning. But I think in a way, this is trying to hack our brain in different ways that our brain didn't evolve to, in a sense, like respond really well to trying to optimize it for pleasure. It evolved for survival. And unfortunately, basically trying to pursue pleasure actually kickstarts a negative reinforcement mechanism that over time makes it less likely that you actually experience intense pleasure. The extreme example of this is pursuing pleasure with cocaine. It's something that might feel good for a little bit, but eventually you become very tolerant to it, you adapt to it, and then you don't actually experience it as particularly pleasurable afterwards. And you may actually feel that normal everyday life is very miserable. And with cocaine, it, it's just good enough to get by. <laughs> and there's a lot of things that happen like that. This uh, hedonic adaptation is, is pretty pervasive in the way that we are built. There are ways of overcoming it, but they take a lot of time. For example, concentration meditation that can give rise to these exotic states of consciousness called the jhanas. But to a large extent, if you can invest enough time on meditation to get there, they seem to be 
quite a bit of a of a free lunch in the sense that you can experience a lot of pleasure without much of a neurological adaptation to it. And also things like wireheading, where you literally introduce a wire that stimulates your pleasure centers electrically. And for some strange reason, the electrical stimulation of the pleasure centers doesn't lead to tolerance, whereas chemical stimulation does. Anyhow, these are some proofs of concept that this uh, rule that everything that goes up has to go down doesn't actually work in every case. And it gives us hope that there might actually be ways of hacking our neurocircuitry such that we are always in a very positive states of consciousness without some of the traditional side effects that you may associate with that. And I guess, yeah, to address very specifically your question, I think the way in which our experience renders the world gives us the illusion that we are pursuing things that are other than states of subjective well-being. That, for example, some people may want to achieve a great career and they think that what actually is good about their life is that they have achieved a very high level in their career, not realizing that actually when they're thinking about their career, that also is triggering positive feelings. And it's those positive feelings that are actually valuable there. And the thing is that in order for those positive feelings to be triggered, your attention has to be focused on the thing that is triggering them. And in that sense, this creates the illusion that the pleasure comes from what you're attending to, as opposed to actually just being triggered because that's how our brain are configured. And that in a sense, if you could overstep this dependence on whatever you're focusing your attention on, you could in a sense not worry about it and just experience the state of well-being independent of any content of your experience. (laughs) I think what I found most initially challenging about this way of thinking is that it takes the entire value in consciousness to exist along this one single axis of valence. And I think it would go against a lot of people's intuitions to say that all that matters in life ultimately is essentially feeling good. And thinking back, my first thoughts about this were, you know, what about meaning? What about truth? But presumably you see all of these other states and goals as merely instrumental. And so ultimately, everything that we care about is framed in terms of valence and states of subjective well-being. Yeah, definitely a point of clarification here is that I think valence manifests in all sorts of crazy ways, but it does collapse into one dimension. One example might be how loud a sound is. Because you could have sound being loud in the high frequencies, but maybe very quiet in the low frequencies. Or you could have a sound that is, you know, tremendously powerful bass and then very little otherwise. And in both cases, the sounds are very loud. But, you know, the way in which they get presented is very, very different. And the way in which they feel is very different. And likewise, you could have valence being something that manifests in one part of your body, for example. You could have like a very, very, very pleasant sensation in in your hand. Or you could, for example, have valence that manifests in your visual field. If you take LSD and and you stare at a wall, it will very likely start tessellating. You will have like this symmetrical texture repetition going on in your visual field. And for some strange reason, that's going to be very engaging and very fascinating and beautiful. 
And I would say, in some sense, what the drug is doing in this case is transforming your visual field into a possible pleasure machine, <laughs> that it's actually enabling it to basically achieve some configurations that themselves have a particular valence, often a, a very high valence. The same with a very strange art, very strange sounds and sculptures and tactile experiences. They may not have a particular semantic content. You may see a sculpture, you may ask, what is that sculpture trying to represent? The artist might get annoyed and say, well, it's not trying to represent anything, it's just an experience. Just feel the experience inherently, don't try to give it meaning. That particular experience will have a valence, and it's going to be a very, very particular flavor of valence. But nonetheless, it will still collapse into whether or not that experience was something that you would consider worth repeating or worth staying in, worth being traded for an experience of nothingness. And to that extent, you can always make a, a judgment on it. Is this positive on the whole? Is this something that I would rather experience as opposed to being asleep, for example? Whereas if you have a very bad headache <laughs> uh, for the most part or a very bad uh, toothache, you will probably say, hey, yeah, I would actually rather be asleep than experiencing this. And okay, that would be a, a marker of the experience being negative valence. Another thing to say here is that I also believe that states of understanding actually tend to come up with a very high valence for a very deep reason. And that is that basically to understand something very fully, you need to, in a sense, be able to see it from every point of view at once or at least be having the possibility of seeing it from many different points of view. Let's say when you understand a mathematical theorem, for example, it's not only that you are following along one line at a time and then concluding that it's logically consistent and that's it, but rather is that you're trying to internalize the entire argumentative structure at once and seeing it simultaneously. And my claim is that when you're doing that, you're actually instantiating all sorts of complex but highly symmetrical data structures in your own consciousness and those themselves feel good that there's actually something intrinsic to very well organized and ordered states of consciousness that give rise to both potentially very high levels of understanding simultaneously as very high levels of valence so when somebody says i don't care about you know mindless pleasure or so on i, I prefer states of understanding and the ultimate sobriety of very deeply uh, having a, a profound experience of clarity about like, let's say a mathematical theorem or something like that, I would say, well, yeah, actually that's also a very high valence experience. It's just that the valence is hidden or tucked away in the structure of your experience. And so you, you may be under the illusion that what you care about here is the clarity of the experience or the understanding but in a sense, actually, the quality of your experience is going to be very good as well. And that's something that I would consider intrinsically valuable. So <laughs> I wouldn't discard the possibility, for example, that some of the absolutely most wonderful states of consciousness possible actually also come about with tremendous sense of understanding and clarity. I think that's actually, yeah, pretty likely. That said, I also value completely mindless pleasure, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, when uh, pleasure or states of well-being get uh, high enough, of a high enough uh, grade and quality, 
they always feel spiritual. They always feel transcendental, ultra meaningful. So yeah, in some sense, there is no such thing as, as meaningless pleasure when you go far enough in, in these axes. I believe that you're also open-minded about the possibility that valence is actually reflecting something very fundamental about how the universe in some sense wants to be, that the universe itself has a kind of utility function uh, that involves valence in some deep way. Would you mind sharing your thoughts about this? Yeah, I very much like this idea that the pleasure-pain axis discloses the universe's utility function. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of strange because, I mean, we are so caught up into thinking of ourselves as individuals that a lot of philosophies focus on, on the satisfaction of individual preferences. And in a sense, like, yeah, that seems very focused on the individual and very focused on particular idiosyncratic preferences that maybe have to do with culture or have to do with how the person was brought up. But either way, it, it seems like it's some very, very, very particular thing. This person likes Van Gogh, this person likes Picasso, this person enjoys food, this person prefers music. Who is to say which of those is a better quote-unquote preference? But in a sense, if you analyze it from the point of view of fundamental consciousness, when a person is expressing a preference, in a sense, is a particular state of consciousness is saying, hey, if I were to change my consciousness in this direction, it would feel better. And for sure, what direction that is pointing to is going to be different depending on where you're starting, what your starting point is. Obviously, if you're experiencing something painful, the direction will probably be in the direction of reducing that pain. So in that sense, may seem like very different preferences to say, I would rather not have a toothache. And somebody else might say, I would rather not have a stomach ache. <laughs> but, you know, fundamentally, they're hitting at the same thing, which is they want their valence to be higher. And likewise, when I hear somebody say, I really like Picasso or I really like Mozart, uh, something like that, I think they're actually saying fundamentally the same thing. I really like higher valence, and this is the particular direction that from my point of view, I can imagine valence being higher. But if you aggregate every point of view, every possible state of consciousness, and you map it out in a vector field of preferences, I would actually expect all of those arrows <laughs> to ultimately converge to some of these ultra high valence peak states of consciousness. And that those, in a sense, are the preferred ways of being for the universe. And definitely with this strange combination of panpsychism and open individualism, in a sense, what the universe prefers, what the universe wants, is what you want, except it's kind of this bigger you, this more holistic you that contains all possible points of view. Um, and yeah, you, you are that. And in a sense, uh, it's your preference. <laughs> so it's kind of strange to realize that, but, but in a sense, this valence axis might be truly what you actually like. Fascinating. I do think that the idea that the universe, in any sense, wants anything, that it is teleological, uh, I'm sure that will raise a few eyebrows. It is generally considered fairly heretical to claim that reality could have any kind of purpose. Um, but I do think several philosophers, um, especially Thomas Nagel more recently, 
have argued uh, that it is defensible that the universe could be uh, in some sense about something that we really don't know enough to rule out that you know the evolution of the universe or life we don't know enough to say that it is entirely directionless but just for the purpose of keeping as many people along with us as possible Andres, why do you believe that teleology in nature is something that can be plausibly defended I don't personally subscribe to the idea that there is a preordained purpose or that the universe was created for a purpose. The origin of the universe is a big, big question. I'd be happy to talk about it, but more to the point, I think reality just is. However, reality has a lot of interesting detailed structure and the state space of consciousness in particular, I think it has this overall structure where you have the possibility of reconciling the pursuit of valence together with the ability to reason. And because, in some sense, intelligence and benevolence can both coexist, that itself opens up the possibility that there is a general direction towards where things that both have a high level of understanding as well as a high level of capacity to feel they tend to point in the same direction when those two things are uh, sufficiently present. I mean, you could imagine a civilization where, in a sense, everybody is very, very, very smart in a certain sense. They're all extremely good at solving mathematical problems and physics problems, and they're wonderful at optimizing resources, but nobody has either negative or positive feelings. They are pretty much always in a neutral valence. You could also imagine a a civilization where everybody is a hyper-empath. Everybody is extremely empathetic, experiences the world extremely intensely in a very emotional way, but they don't necessarily have the cognitive abilities of a a systematizer. They don't necessarily (laughs) enjoy math or solving uh, technical problems. So, okay, like they might not be a very technologically advanced civilization, but they might be pretty advanced emotionally speaking, in a sense, I think like those are possible end stages of, of civilization. You could definitely have those as possible attractors. But if you're able to combine both of those cognitive architectures, in a sense, a very natural outcome is systematic exploration of states of well-being. And I think like it just so happens that reality contains the possibility of combining these two things. And for that reason, that there is a general direction towards which a holistic sense of intelligence or superintelligence points to. And in that sense, yeah, some purpose is embedded in the structure of reality. And in this case, it's up to us. We have the possibility of actually <laughs> instantiating this, in some sense, eternal purpose. Although, again, I'm not saying that the universe was created for this purpose. It's more that it's just embedded as a possibility in the structure of reality. So to place this in the context of panpsychism and the fundamental view of consciousness that you defended at the beginning of our conversation, I wondered if you could say a bit more about how the valence that we experience makes contact with or reflects this fundamental value or utility function of the universe. Yeah, I think like the first time I heard this concept actually, yeah, was from uh, David Pierce. He said something along the lines of the hedonic tone or valence discloses the universe's intrinsic utility function. And 
I thought that was pretty fascinating. And and yeah, I think I've definitely come around to that view. I mean, a super big open question is whether inanimate objects or, you know, the mind dust inside inanimate objects, do they have any meaningful amount of valence or not? And there's definitely arguments in, in both directions. I know one philosopher from Norway who actually believes that it's pleasure and pain driving causality itself in physics. And that, you know, if you were to analyze exactly what makes an atom move, ultimately it will come down to gradients of well-being, which is a, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating perspective on, on a very different kind of view. Valence is actually a, a very special case in consciousness. And you really require an evolutionary process to recruit it for information processing purposes. And in that sense, probably the vast majority of mind dust out there is pretty neutral in its valence. It's neither happy nor, nor in a state of suffering. But even if that is the case, it wouldn't remove the possibility that valence is actually what ultimately matters from the point of view of the universe, because you can always bring back open individualism. And in that sense, when you're purifying your state of consciousness and you're making kind of a very egoless judgments about its value, in some sense, you are the universe making those judgments. And in that sense, when you're making an egoless value judgment on the quality of your experience, yeah, that is the universe judging itself, judging its own states. And in that sense, valence would be shown to be disclosing the intrinsic utility function of the universe itself. If we do assume that valence is uh, what we really care about above all else, I think an important thing to recognize is that human minds were not necessarily designed by evolution to experience that much valence. We certainly didn't evolve to be happy all the time. And so if that is what we're aiming for, it's going to take a lot more than us all simply satisfying our preferences to truly achieve a higher hedonic set point. And so attempting this will entail something that you refer to as wireheading. Andreas, can you describe what wireheading is and how you see it potentially being implemented? Definitely. Wireheading comes from the insight that there is at least one method of modifying our brain that allows us to experience very strong feelings of well-being in a sustainable way, which is introducing an electrode in your pleasure centers and electrically stimulating them. And uh, it's just a fascinating biological fact that there is no tolerance, physiological tolerance associated with this. Presumably because our ancestral environments didn't have neurosurgery laying around as something to evolve away in, in a sense. <laughs> um, but uh, the proof of concept itself opens up the possibility of Maybe there are other ways of modifying our nervous system in order to sustainably raise our, our hedonic baseline. I think like genetic interventions are extremely promising. In particular, there are a cluster of genes having to do with a pain thresholds that basically seems to explain a, a significant fraction of the variance when it comes to the probability that a person will be depressed or experience anxiety or the probability that a person will just be above average when it comes to how pleasant their day-to-day -day experience is like. And there's also like a, a particular gene that breaks down, modulates the breakdown of anandamine, a particular neurotransmitter also associated with feelings of well-being. 
And Joe Cameron, a vegan school teacher, has a particular mutation of this gene that basically allows her to experience almost no pain, but nonetheless still have the gradients of pleasure to be able to navigate the world successfully. And she's a pretty, in a sense, normal person and <laughs> very friendly. And she's like 70 years old, has never done anything too crazy in her life, as far as we know. But she said that childbirth felt almost like a tickle, which is uh, crazy considering that childbirth is one of the most painful things that people experience in their life. Likewise, she's never really felt sad in her life. And as far as anybody can tell, like she's really not missing out on, <laughs> on anything. She's just a very normal person enjoying life pretty well. Nothing too out of the ordinary in, in that sense. So yeah, I mean, all of this suggests that, hey, actually, there might be some relatively small changes that we can do to ourselves that will radically increase our hedonic baseline and allow us to prevent any kind of extreme suffering, extreme pain, while still allowing us to navigate the world in a sane and sensible way. So wireheading as a concept covers a range of possible interventions that we could make that would make us or future generations much happier in general. And we do have, as you described just there, some important proofs of concept, such as this genetic variation, which dramatically raises our felt sense of well-being uh, and without any apparent downsides. You and I talked quite a bit about this in our last conversation that people can listen to. Uh, but Andreas, what do you think the world would be like if everyone was happy all the time? What do you think we'd be doing with our time? Do you think that we would still have reasons to do anything at all? Right. There's definitely the stereotype, this idea that, you know, if you're extremely happy, you would just become a couch potato, just doing nothing, just laughing very hard, just enjoying yourself, but just completely disconnected from reality. The truth is that at least as far as you know, humans in their present guise is concerned, actually increasing your happiness for the most part actually makes you more active and interested in engaging with the world is actually quite the opposite to the stereotype. The thing that actually causes behavioral inhibition is depression and anxiety and yeah, negative states of consciousness are actually things that arrest your development and your ability to learn or, or care about reality and keep exploring it. Whereas positive states of consciousness, a big subset of them are associated with enhanced exploratory behavior, behavioral diversity. And I think that in a sense, we can expect massive increase in people's productivity for the most part. There's even some concern if people are too productive, is that a problem? <laughs> and it could actually be a problem, you know, if a certain percentage of the population is using that productivity for bad purposes or for the purpose of investigating something that could produce a lot of dangerous information, like weapons development or whatnot. But I don't particularly foresee the problem of becoming too sedated or not having enough energy to be something I might associate with wireheading. It's actually quite the opposite. The other thing, too, is that. Honestly, I think the era of knowledge has scarcely just begun. We have only scratched the surface of what there is to understand about the universe. And some people might point at, for example, the standard model in physics or our latest understanding of chemistry and biology and say most of our mysteries 
have been solved, or at least we have a possible path for understanding it. Maybe knowledge is actually coming to a close, and we will, in a sense, know everything that is humanly feasible to know pretty soon, and there's not going to be many more mysteries. But here again, I would point at the massive unknowns that exist when it comes to consciousness. In particular, the statements of consciousness is something that we haven't really explored in any systematic way, and it's extraordinarily huge. Even just, for example, the possible states of consciousness that you can achieve with uh, DMT alone, just DMT, is incredibly large. And I could imagine hundreds of scientists, perhaps like wire-headed scientists, hyper-motivated and hyper-competent, dedicating their entire life just to exploring a particular subset of DMT experiences. And they wouldn't be done with it in a hundred years. And when you generalize it to all of the possible combinations of all of the possible drugs and all of the possible ways of modifying nervous systems and interfacing with matter and energy and integrating new computational technologies inside a nervous system and so on, the state space is so, so large that uh, I actually expect it's going to take millions of years to, to explore. And that would be a really good use of time for basically wire-headed entities, our descendants, in a sense, mining this huge field of possibilities and finding better and better gems hidden in the state space of consciousness. Andres, you've been really generous with your time today. I think it'd be very difficult for me to overstate just how interesting I think your ideas are, and also really the work that you're doing at the Qualia Research Institute. So before we come to an end here, perhaps you could give people a sense of what you're focusing on at the moment at QRI. Uh, yeah, definitely. There's a, a couple of like active projects. The one that is probably yeah the most important when it comes to long-term outcomes is that we are doing neuroimaging analysis of high-valence states of consciousness. To give you a, a flavor of what that entails, <laughs> it entails literally mailing clinical-grade EEG <laughs> all across the country to people who are expert meditators. And then, uh, yeah, basically having a Skype sessions with them such that <laughs> we can mark exactly when artifacts are being introduced into the EEG recording. We have a professional neurofeedback technician with us uh, who joined QRI. And, uh, you know, we're doing those sessions. We're also analyzing fMRI data of high valence states of consciousness. Meditation is our primary target for the time being. Hopefully, we will be able to get a data on 5-MeO-DMT or MDMA. Those continue to be some of our highest priorities. But meditation, the jhanas, they're super high valence. And thankfully, we know quite a lot of people who can actually access these jhanas estates in a pretty reliable way. We even have access to a, a couple of people who are like really, really experts on transitioning between jhanas. So we can actually take measurements of what exactly the transition between the third and the fourth jhana looks like at the level of brainwaves. There's a, a lot of like fascinating stuff to, to be looked at in there. And that's a very big chunk of the things that we are doing at the moment. We are also writing a book to make it easier to ramp up to the place where you can actually understand m- most of the concepts and, and scientific research lineages behind uh, the Qualia Research Institute. And hopefully that book will come out before the end of this year. I think that's uh, quite likely. Then I think like, yeah, more, more broadly, we're in the process of developing some 
neurotechnology, basically taking the insights from what brain states look like in ultra high valence states of consciousness, and then seeing if we can, if not necessarily replicate those, at least move the brain in that direction in a very, very quick and effective way with uh, things such as very specific algorithmically controlled stroboscopic stimulation, body vibration, and audio with neurofeedback. So basically, in a closed loop way, driving a nervous system up to this like very, very pleasant meditative state that tenderizes a high valence states of consciousness, even for somebody who really hasn't uh, either taken psychedelics or meditated a lot. Right now, we're still in the developmental stage for that project, but we think it will be super important for basically standardizing states of consciousness, that we will be able to take somebody who has never taken any drug and who has never meditated and put them in the device and within 15 minutes be reasonably certain that the person will be in a pretty ecstatic state of consciousness. And then we can, in that time, in that exact moment, basically record their brainwaves and study those ecstatic states of consciousness in that way, again, overstepping the need for thousands of hours of meditation and, you know, overstepping the need for getting uh, super difficult permits for studying things like MDMA. So that's, uh, yeah, roughly what we're doing on the side. A lot of people at QRI have super interesting hobbies. There's definitely a, a whole episode I could do about one of my hobbies, which is investigating the state space of smells, which is something that I've been doing for maybe the last uh, six months or so in a more serious way. But yeah, uh, other people at QRI have uh, interesting hobbies ranging from meditation to nootropics to music, producing interesting music. And uh, yeah, in a sense, that's uh, I think that's the, the ideal people to join our team, people who are definitely just like very smart, very well-read but ideally also somebody who has like some avenues to explore consciousness in a sustainable and healthy way such that they can, in a sense, you know, use their free time to also provide insights <laughs> about the state space of consciousness. Hopefully that gives you a, a bit of an idea. Yeah, it's really fascinating work that you're doing at the uh, Qualia Research Institute. I also definitely want to recommend that people take a look at your website, qualiacomputing.com. There's a lot of truly mind-expanding articles that you've written, which I think a lot of people listening would really enjoy. And um, so I'll put a link to that in the description as well as to the Qualia Research Institute. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a super fun conversation and I think it's uh, super good questions and I, I really liked uh, diving so deep into these, uh, these topics. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed this and I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Hey everybody, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Remember to hit like and subscribe for more episodes. And if you're listening on YouTube, I'll be in the comments section if you want to chat about the subjects in today's episode. And finally, an enormous thank you to those of you who are supporting me and Waking Cosmos through my Patreon page at patreon.com slash wakingcosmos. Okay, I will see you next time for another episode of Waking Cosmos, exploring the nature of consciousness and its place in reality. Until then. <laughs>